welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, ambassador designate. To what? Well, right now I'm trying to solve this whole Israel-Palestine thing. I think I'll have that wrapped up by next week and Mm. then... I'll move on to something else. All right. Imagine if that is wrapped up by the time this. Uh, no. Yeah. Yeah. It's thousands of years. And you expect by the time we release this. Uh, Especially episode. if they get a comedian and podcaster and filmmaker to. Uh, and ambassador designate. Sure. Oh, yeah. Sure. So, so why would we mention such a weird profession? Because in this season of awesome movie year, as we talk about the films of 1967, we're here at our flop episode to talk about. One of the most obscure movies we've covered on this this podcast, the box office flop of 1967, Charlie Chaplin's final film, A Countess from Hong Kong. A flop, Chaplin, and not just a flop, but you said like obscure, Chaplin, Brando, Sophia Loren. How is that obscure? Right. You'd think that this movie, even if it flopped at the time it was released, would be more well-known now as is nearly every movie that Charlie Chaplin made in a career that spanned 50 plus years. And yet it's not, it, it really, it really isn't. But this is the final film that he made that he wrote and directed. Um, although he does not star in this, this is one of only two feature films he made that he did not star in it. And the other one was a woman of Paris, which was uh, all the way back in the 1920s. So Chaplin certainly known, you know, as sort of in pop culture for his screen presence, less so as a filmmaker, even though he did write and direct and score basically every movie that he ever appeared in. Right. I mean, I don't think he gets the credit he deserves as a director because he's such an incredibly talented performer. You got to realize, like, especially with those silent films, those were often just like single takes that they go on and on. And he's doing all these incredible sequences that take so much talent both in front and behind the camera yeah of course watching this movie you wouldn't think that this was made by a talented director but um, but you are right i mean some of those visually some of those uh things that he does in those silent films are amazing and i think people give more credit for that kind of thing to buster keaton or to harold lloyd but chaplin does some amazing work uh on that as well None of that evident in this film, however. Um, It grossed $2 million worldwide on its $3.5 million budget, which is bad. Although it was more successful in Europe and in Japan than it was uh, here in the U.S. And apparently made its money back via the musical score uh, that Chaplin wrote, uh, as well as a theme song sung by Petula Clark. Yeah, that's pretty awesome that he made his money back from uh, the song, This Is My Song. Tula Clark sang it. Uh, it reached number three in the U.S., number one in the U.K., Ireland, Australia, and the Netherlands and Belgium. And he is still the oldest composer to hit number one in the U.K. and the Netherlands. So even going out with a flop, he's making history. Right. And I think that's another thing that maybe Chaplin doesn't get enough credit for is his music. And he composed those scores. And when with silent films, the score is easily 50% of what, you know, makes the movie. And the score is nice in this one in the background here with yeah. the dancing. And, yeah. you know. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, hey. again, no, no one, nothing in this movie is an example of the best of anybody. Hey, Josh, did I ever tell you about the time I met Petula Clark? <laughs> no. When did that happen? Do you know where I met her? 
I don't. Downtown. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm like gearing up for some great Las Vegas story of Jason meeting a celebrity. And that's what we get instead. That was fantastic. You really, you really, uh, you really baited me with that one. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> Uh, so this is, I mean, despite its, its general failure, this is a movie that Chaplin had wanted to make since the 1930s. Uh, and at one time was going to make starring, uh, Paulette Goddard and is based on real experiences that he had meeting uh, a Russian woman, the, essentially the Sophia Loren character, who is a, a Russian refugee from the Russian revolution when all of these aristocratic families were booted out of Russia um, and then found refuge in China, in Shanghai. And then, of course, there's a communist revolution in China, too. And so they end up in Hong Kong. And these former aristocrats are reduced to these menial jobs and women are, are reduced to prostitution. And it's it's a very serious and heavy thing for this light comedy. And really interesting. Yeah. And in a way that is not at all explored in this yeah. film. <laughs> Uh, I believe the woman's name is, he talked about it in, uh, my trip abroad, which was I think, a book of his. Yeah. An autobiography. 22 or something. Yeah. And, uh, Musa Sudskaya, who he just called Skaya. So that's what I got for you. And Paulette Goddard, right? His ex-wife. Yeah. Many ex-wives that Charlie Chaplin had throughout, uh, his life. And I mean, and, and also, a, a successful actress in her own right. Yeah. She was that movie was going to be called Stowaway. Yeah. And so he finally, in 1967, decided he could make this film. It was his first film in 10 years uh, since 1957's A King in New York, which I haven't seen. I haven't seen that one either. Yeah. Also not particularly well known. Uh, Chaplin only made five, I think, sound features. I mean, he slowed down a lot in his later career after churning out these dozens and dozens yeah. of silent shorts early on. He earned it. Yeah, I mean, totally. But I mean, he's known as the silent star, um, but he did, you know, continue working in the sound era for a while. He just was not very prolific uh, and a king in New York, not uh, well regarded, maybe a little more so than this movie, but definitely not. Um, and this is also the only film that Chaplin ever made in color. Hmm. <laughs> Thank you for that appreciative noise, Jason. Yeah, so uh, not well received. And it's, you know, one of these things that, of course, you know, even in 1967, Charlie Chaplin was this, this massive titan of cinema. So there's huge expectations for him, even at this late point in his career, when he's in his late 70s, a movie that he's directed is, is an event. And a first movie that he's directed in 10 years, everyone has high expectations. And most people are disappointed. Bosley Crowther in the New York Times said, so the dismal truth is it is awful. It is so bad that I wondered at one point whether Mr. Chaplin, who wrote and directed it, might not be trying to put us on, trying to travesty the kind of hiding in the closet comedies where people banged on doors and those in the room dived for cover that were popular as two real silent films. But if he was, he failed to surround his story with a sufficiently clever slapstick style and he certainly failed to communicate his intention to Mr. Brando and Miss Loren. They march and sashay through this burletta about an American ambassador who is put to the embarrassing inconvenience of having to conceal a stowaway Russian countess in his suite aboard a Pacific crossing ship, as though they were in high comedy by Freddie Lonsdale or Noel Coward, trying to be elegant and airy with ditchwater dull dialogue. And of course, Chaplin, not necessarily known for writing dialogue, I mean, came out of an era where there really wasn't any. Yeah, I mean, I mean, other films of his, Great Dictator, right? That's 
more well-regarded, obviously. It's a classic, and that has lots of dialogue. That it so, does. Maybe too much dialogue and, at times. Uh, that's me giving you an expert opinion. <laughs> lots of dialogue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, but look, that's still a stupid trope that we see. Like, someone's coming, hide in the closet. What? You know? Yeah, so, and it's still This just stupid. happens... 700 times in this movie yeah i mean uh, i think i saw someone on 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 maybe letterbox or something saying that like 90 percent of this movie is just characters going in and out of the same room i did have to do that once now that i remember in high school uh i was over at this girl's house you know what's up mm. and uh her, <laughs> we were hanging out it was me and her and her friend and uh, it was getting fun hot and heavy josh you got a knock on the door and it was the dad night Hit in the closet. Wow. Did that work? It did work. Amazing. Yeah. Because I think I would have been punched otherwise. Well, that would have been bad. Yeah. I mean, this is still <laughs> something that happens. And it's not that it can't be amusing at times, but it's just this movie is so repetitive with that happening over and over and over again. And the, the buzzer on the suite that uh, Ogden Mears, the Marlon Brando character, has on this uh, transatlantic ship just goes off constantly and everybody every time as if they every time the buzzer goes off it's as if the characters did not realize that that could happen yeah josh it kind of brought back uh some memories of your pick from uh last season there the 2003 the down with love where you're seeing these misunderstandings but they were done in a much more effective way yeah i mean and you know uh bosley crowther here citing freddie lonsdale and noel coward playwrights who are known for these kind of farcical slamming doors comedies and it can be done in a very amusing way but for someone who is an icon of comedy this movie feels like charlie chaplin doesn't understand humor well that's interesting because he, he does do misunderstanding so well in so many things city lights i always think of modern times right but this like we talked about 1967 this year from the future to the past right this feels like something that was stuck in the past and just didn't have any place in the future. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like Chaplin trying to sort of adapt himself to the modern times, if you Hey-o. will. Uh, and, you know, especially by casting people like Brando and Sophia Loren, who are of the moment stars, and just not having any conception of how to do that. Yeah, um, everything I read from the background made it sound like it would have been a really amazing documentary, how much Chaplin and Brando hated each other. And, uh, and how Chaplin kind of treated people, whether good or bad, you know. So it uh, it's a miss, man. It's a miss. It is. So Wendy Michener in McLean's is, again, I think people are trying to be generous to Chaplin because he's Chaplin. She said, slow and old-fashioned as it is, a countess from Hong Kong is rather endearing. Like those old ladies who turn up at parties in the beads and boas of their better days. We may find Chaplin's faith in romantic love naive, but it's obviously sincere. We may be disappointed that one of the screen's few undisputed geniuses has nothing more to tell us, but there are enough Chaplin touches to make the movie amusing. And there is one character who brings back for a moment Chaplin's little man. It's Hudson, the manservant who finds himself married to Sophia Loren on the strict understanding that he'll keep his distance, the ultimate in wistfulness. No. No. Hudson, did I, did you think anything Hudson was or did brought any memories of Chaplin to you? I mean, only in the sense that Chaplin often plays this sort of hapless character who is ends up in over his head and is just doing what he's told. I mean, and that's certainly this character who is the butler of Ogden Mears, Marlon Brando's character, who in this very convoluted way of them trying to get 
the countess into the U.S., has been ordered by his boss to marry her, and he's just so flustered about the whole thing. I mean, it's not good, but I can see how it would remind you of the kind of thing that Chaplin used to try to do. Remember back in the day when Chaplin would meet a lovely young lady on the street and then spend the rest of the movie trying to convince her to have sex with him, you know? Right. That, that didn't really happen. I don't think so, so. Well, no, but I mean, the idea of him sort of being caught up in over his head and often by rich people who uh, just kind of batter him around, like, I, I can see that. Again, I don't think it's successful, but I can see where that went for her. Hudson uh, was interesting because one of the alternate castings I had read for Hudson was Noel Coward. As mentioned there, and that could have been interesting. And another one was Peter Sellers. And uh, imagine if you had Chaplin, Sellers, and Brando on the same set. Would this movie ever have been? I don't even know. They'd all they'd all have died on the set. I think from from ego clashes. Yeah, it would have been something. So. So there are defenders of this movie, and this is one of these movies that, not surprisingly, anyone who you know people defend it ardently because it's the work of this master and they decide that it's uh, misunderstood. So uh, Andrew Saris in the village voice spends like probably 60% of his review complaining about Bosley Crowther of the New York times. Uh, and it's a, it's a combination defense of this as well as uh, Orson Welles's film chimes at midnight, which is another sort of misunderstood later film by an early master. But uh, Andrew Saris says, Chaplin had problems with both Loren and Brando simply because neither is Chaplin. But the movie still generates a surprising amount of charm and wit. Chaplin's writing still strains for many of its ironic effects, and the plot is almost too sentimental to synopsize safely. But the lines are underplayed almost to a whisper, and one particularly sticky scene is brilliantly redeemed by the slapstick of seasickness. People who attack a countess from Hong Kong in the name of the chaplain they once allegedly loved have probably forgotten what Chaplin was like in the past. If you ever liked Chaplin, you will probably like a countess from Hong Kong. It is the quintessence of everything Chaplin has ever felt. I don't know. I mean, it's tough to place because are you going to fault a guy for trying to make a movie that he's wanted to make for 30 years, right? And he's trying to make it in, as you said, modern times and, and with a modern viewpoint. Uh, I don't hate it. Um, I think you probably hated it more than I did. Yeah, I mean, hate is a strong word, but I definitely did not enjoy it. Right. I didn't really enjoy it either, but I thought it was just um, harmless, maybe is the word. But yeah, I don't know. This one is, um, it just it just fizzles, man. Yeah, I mean, and I think as much as Andrew Saris is, is sort of, pushing back on the idea that like, oh, people don't understand this. I think maybe he is so set on defending Chaplin that he's looking for redeeming qualities that this movie doesn't necessarily have. I mean, that scene he mentions where they're all seasick is terrible. It's just so belabored and annoying. The thing is, I could see with like a silent movie where maybe you have to kind of do the joke a little more overtly or repeat it one or two more times to kind of push the point home but it really doesn't work here in the um with the verbal uh mixed with that kind of slapsticky like i'm hiding here now i'm hiding here i'm hiding here again and it just it just wasn't uh a good thing but i mean i'm not gonna fault him for all of it i mean 
Did you think that any of the uh, actors were really apt with comedy in this one? No, Brando is awful in this movie. Yeah. Just like unbelievably bad. Completely miscast. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, as you mentioned, he clashed with Chaplin. They didn't get along. And and apparently Chaplin's technique as a director was to act out all the parts I, himself. I love that so much. That I mean, it's I, I, as an actor, you would hate it. But if it's Chaplin doing it, like Tippi Hedren said, like it would just be like watching a show every day, all day. It would be amazing. Right. I'd love to see a movie of that, by the way. Right. That's right. Well, documentary it's, yeah, as Jason was saying, if there was a documentary about this, it would be fascinating. But you can see Brando, who's even, at, you know, at this time is known as this like monument of acting, being insulted that even Charlie Chaplin, even the great Charlie Chaplin is trying to act out a part for him. Right. In general, it is insulting if a director tries to do that. Right. But I mean that he's coming from an older kind of philosophy. And again, it's like I look at it the same way, like uh, as a basketball fan, when Michael Jordan came back and like played for the Wizards and like he's trying to teach all these young kids how to be Michael Jordan. You can't teach someone to be Michael Jordan. There's only Michael Jordan, you know. So uh, that was a special reference for you because I know you love sports. I do. But I do know who Michael Jordan is. That's thanks good. to our episode on Space Jam. <laughs> Other than that, you had never heard of him before. Yeah, I didn't even really know. But uh, yeah, it was was just the misguided effort from the beginning. Again, you never fault someone for trying to do something different, move ahead. And um, I mean, if anyone deserves deserved the chance to do it, it would be Chaplin, right? Right, of course. And it's unfortunate that this is the last thing that he did, that he wasn't able to kind of pull out one more great thing before dying. But that's what we're left with. That's it. Yeah. So, I mean, I assume, Jason, that you had not seen this movie I don't think I'd ever heard of it until we were doing research for this season and I came upon this and looked it up and just saw that kind of, um, you know, that coagulation of those three names. And I was like, well, I kind of feel like we have to watch this, don't we? Yeah, I was glad that you found this because I think we had talked about some other possibilities for this episode that were less uh, intriguing. And it's just, it's like, yeah, once you learn of the existence of this movie, it's like, how could you not be curious what that turned out to be? Right. So yeah, of course, I had not ever seen it. I think I've seen uh, all but one of the f- silent features that uh, Chaplin directed. And the only one I haven't seen is actually A Woman of Paris, the one that he doesn't star in, that stars Paulette Goddard. And I've seen The Great Dictator uh, that you mentioned, which is certainly his most well-known, well-regarded sound film, but not some of the the ones leading up to this, Limelight and Monsieur Verdu. And uh, a king in New York, which uh, Limelight I think is very well regarded, but it's it, you know it's interesting to think of Chaplin in that era and think of him as a sound performer because he's just so indelibly connected to silent films, right? And you do see a lot of it work in um, The Great Dictator, that type of comedy, and but yeah, and I've seen this in The Great Dictator from the talkies and then from the silent ones. I think I've seen about half of them. Yeah. And I mean, there's a million short films, right, too, in addition to those features. Yeah. A good amount. of. Yeah. Those. And uh, the, the, the Henderson Symphony here uh, in Vegas, uh, shout out to them for uh, in the past, they would do uh, performances with live accompaniment to silent films, including a few Chaplin movies that I saw. And that's just a great way to yeah, say that's a, a like lovely that. night. Right. Yeah, there. it was great. I love to get a chance to see a silent film with live music. Uh, so Dave, I know you didn't get a chance to watch this because it's uh, we had to track down a DVD and it's not easily accessible. But have you seen other Chaplin films? Are you a fan? You know, I don't think I've seen any 
Maybe when I was a kid, I've seen a couple, but no, I haven't watched any as an adult, and I probably should. Uh, you should. Yeah. You're, you're, yeah, probably. Shame on yeah. you, Dave. Really. Definitely. You hear the scorn in my voice. Yeah, probably, Dave. Maybe I'll go to that Henderson thing, huh? Yeah, that's yeah. that's really lots fun, of fun. I hope actually, they do yeah. it again. Yeah, they got away from Chaplin and did some other stuff in you know more recent years. I don't know if they're going to do it again, but it was always a cool thing to check out. Anything else on this ba- on the background here you want to talk about, Jason? Uh, I think you covered uh, a good amount of it there, Josh. So uh, I think we should probably mention Margaret Rutherford, you know, a classic actress who played Mrs. Gall Swallow, great name, and uh, kind of was one of those women uh, that was referred to in that uh, in that review where she's wearing her best pearls and gowns 20 years too late. So yeah, there's yeah. a weird detour there for her scenes. Right. And uh, we do get a Chaplin cameo in here with uh, one sight gag in there. Yeah, but it's pretty, it's uh, again, not not the greatest thing for him to go out on as his final screen appearance there. Well, let's talk more about that when we come back from this hot break. <laughs> Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1967, we are talking about the biggest flop of the year, Charlie Chaplin's A Countess from Hong Kong. Which we already said made its money back somehow. Somehow, you know, and that's, I think, the thing with some of these other flops that we've talked about, too, that eventually, especially if it comes from someone such a notable filmmaker, there's enough interest that, that people will come to it eventually. Between that and Petula Clark, buddy. Yeah, who Jason did not ever meet in person, <laughs> FYI. <laughs> so, I mean, we kind of went through the plot of this movie. Here's the plot. Marlon Brando, Ogden Mears is this, as we said, ambassador designate this politician. And he's in Hong Kong for a night and he meets the countess, uh, you know, who is not really a countess anymore. She's just, like you said, she's a prostitute now. At this point right. She, she would have had a title had she inherited it back in Russia, but the revolution has yeah. gotten and rid of that. She has no real citizenship, no real, real rights. She's just struggling to survive. That's Sophia Loren. Her character is Natasha. They talk. They have a nice night. Brando gets back on the ship, headed for home. And he finds that uh, Sophia Loren has stowed away in her cabin and he finds that by opening the closet and she's in there. A gag we come back to many times. Mm-hmm. They have their kind of uh, back and forth. Uh, we don't like each other, but now we're charmed by each other and, you know, all this. Meanwhile, he is going to get divorced from his wife, played by Tippi Hedren, who doesn't come in until 90 minutes in the movie. Yeah. And for some reason, it looks it'll look like a scandal if, Anyone sees that Natasha is on the boat with him. So they go to great extents, him and his, uh, I guess, his uh, surrounding advisors. Yeah, his associate. There's the one guy played by Sidney Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin's son. Who was the best part of the movie. He did the best job of all of them, I thought. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he's really playing like the straight man. Yeah, but he was good at that. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things Brando hated, he said, was how Chaplin talked to us. his son Sydney on the set. And I mean, those two just, if you could see oil and water, Brando shows up late. Chaplin hates that. Chaplin tells Brando how to do a take. Brando hates that. You know, it's just not a, not a good fit. So then we go back and forth and mishap, 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 blah, blah, blah. Happy ending. The end. 
Yeah, very abrupt. They fall in love. And 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 we should mention also that Marlon Brando and Sophia Loren have no chemistry whatsoever in this film. It's entirely unbelievable that these characters would fall in love with each other. I mean, I have to be honest, I haven't seen much. Uh, I mean, Sophia Loren's an icon. I haven't seen many of her films. Obviously, I will go back and watch more. I, you know, very, very... Uh, Good job in grumpier old men, that I can tell you. So, but I've seen plenty of Brando movies, obviously. And yeah. uh, like you said, completely miscast. Neither of them, I mean, bring anything to the table in this one. And uh, the Natasha character, I mean, I can't blame the writing on all of it. There is some depth to both of the characters. So it's just not a hit on any in any level there's no sizzle to this thing yeah i mean and i don't know like i think as we we're saying before there's theoretical depth to natasha just from this interesting real world context that she was inspired by but other than the kind of explanation at the beginning of the movie when they're in hong kong and they they go to this dance hall where everyone is a countess and it's full of these refugees and they explain where they came from other than that, you never really get the like poignancy of her situation. It's just wackiness. I think sometimes on the ship where she explains why she'll never go back and she'll do whatever she has to do to escape, you do get a little more depth to that character. And I mean, the, the, the depth with Ogden of this career man going through this divorce and how he can't have a scandal like that, I don't really think you ever get any gravitas to. No, I mean, and that character is, I mean, he's a career man, I guess, but really he's just a rich heir to an oil fortune who gets to be an ambassador for no reason of his own ability, but just because he's rich, which is a thing that happens in reality. But I mean, it doesn't endear you to him as a character. Look, Josh, Sophia Loren and Marlon Brando, 1967, both, both beautiful looking. They are. They are indeed. Trying to find some positives. That's true. And you you know, you wanna and 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 they look good in the movie. I mean, they're they're styled well, I guess. Yeah, costumes were good. Uh I thought there was a lot of like dance sequences, including at the end. I thought those the colors, the music, and the way those were shot. I mean, I would have liked a little more energy to the way it was shot, but they still look all right. Again, I just it's all just like it's like if you declawed a cat and it just pawed at you, <laughs> like you're like, all right, cat, I don't like it, but you're not really hurting me. <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of what this movie is. So. Yeah, I mean, the colors do look nice, considering that this is the only movie that Chaplin made in color. Like he m makes the best of that with the costumes and the sets. I mean, of course, also as I mentioned before, like probably 60 to 70% of this movie takes place in a single set in just the, the suite that Ogden Mears has on this transatlantic ship, which is, which is fine. That can work, but it's just such a repetitive gag that it doesn't like, you know, we like single location things, you know? Yeah, but it doesn't work here at all. Right. It does not. Yeah. It's very, very repetitive. And I was just so frustrated every time it's like, okay, here we go again. Someone's going to hit the buzzer and everyone's going to scramble and be surprised. And someone's going to hide in the bathroom and someone's going to hide in the closet and someone else is going to answer the door. And it's like, how many times can we do that? Right. And Hudson's going to complain that he doesn't get to sleep with Sophia Loren. And now they're all sick. And now they're, you know, it's just, uh, and Chaplin plays an old steward who kind of comes in and warns him of the seasickness and then gets sick himself. And yeah, I don't know. His daughters are in it uh, briefly. And uh, 
like we said, Sidney Chaplin did a good job. He, I think he's a one of Tony at one point in time. Oh, yeah. Not for this, because this is a film, and <laughs> not a musical. But, uh, but yeah, I don't know. We never really hear about Sidney Chaplin. No, no, we don't. Um, I mean, but he did have a decent career for a little bit of time, and and I mean, he has a substantial role in this, as opposed to the the younger daughters who really just show up in little cameos in the background. Um, and you get the sense that maybe they were just hanging out on the set, and Chaplin gave them something to do. But but Sydney has quite a large part. I mean, he's probably the third most important character after Brando and Loren in this film. Yeah. And and yeah, he does fine. I mean, truthfully, he gives a better performance than Marlon Brando does. That's what I said. That's yeah. what I'm saying. He's the best thing in this. Yeah, scene. yeah. Uh, um, speaking of Brando, Josh, the uh, alternate casting that I had read for this one, and I think the first two would have been much better choices. Rex Harrison, Cary Grant. I mean, they're both too old, though, I think at this point. You think so? Yeah, I mean, they're both in their 60s at this point. Oh, yeah. We've never seen a man in his 60s have a love interest in their well, 30s. No, true, true. But I think it would. It, that's not the dynamic that they're going for in this right. film. Well, the other two, Gary Cooper, who I can't really see. Sean Connery, 60s, but I don't know, you know. I mean, yeah, he might have been. Yeah, Connery could have done it, maybe. I mean, he's not really necessarily known for comedy. I mean, I kept thinking that, you know, if Chaplin really wanted to embrace kind of younger Hollywood in making this film... I mean, what about Dustin Hoffman? What about Warren Beatty? Dustin Hoffman, as we said, was an unknown quantity. At true, true. Time, so. But I mean, I was just thinking of actors who were kind of younger and, you know, achieving stardom at this time, you know, Warren Redford. Beatty. Yeah, maybe Redford, Gene Wilder. I don't know. It's just Paul Newman. Yeah. Virtually anyone, really. Yeah. I mean, Brando is the worst possible choice for this role. Yeah. It would have been great if it was... Uh... Paul Newman, because then he could have said, hey, Hudson, your wife sucks pussy. <laughs> Slap shot callback. Sorry. All right. I love that. Uh, okay. Yeah, it just, it's not a good fit, Josh. We agree on that. But most of the characters don't have much to do anyway. There's this one kind of uh, a leech of a man who like kind of is always trying to force himself back to the cabin with Natasha. And he, there's no depth to him. There's, like you said, like, I don't know. I don't think Sophia Loren really brings much to the part either. Like, I mean, we're Brando's not good, but I don't really think she pops off on this one either here. No, I think she's less notably terrible than Brando is. And it's interesting in, in the, the very long Andrew Sarris piece that I quoted from, uh, he says, as opposed to in, in uh, McLean's where she compares Hudson to the sort of iconic Charlie Chaplin character, Sarris claims that Sophia Loren's character is like the Chaplin tramp, which well, I don't really see that. Well, I, I will give, I will give this defense of it because I was reading this from Jeffrey Vance, who has was the biographer of Chaplin. The tramp's philosophy is expressed by Natasha's dialogue, quote unquote. Don't be sad. That's too easy. Be like me at this moment. I'm very happy. That's all we can ask for this moment. End of quote. Searching for a better life while always understanding that both happiness and beauty are fleeting. That does sum up the tramp's philosophy, I'd say. I guess, but I mean, the way she behaves or the things that she does just to me did not recall that character. And obviously, Sophia Loren is no better at being a slapstick character than Marlon Brando. Maybe is. we should, maybe the mistake is that people keep trying to compare this to the tramp. This isn't a movie about the tramp. This, and we don't know that if he had made this with Paulette Goddard, that there would have been any character for that, you know. Right. Uh, you assume maybe that Chaplin would have played the Ogden Mears character if that had been made in the 30s, but that may not be true. 
Right. Yeah. So you just don't know. As we said, uh, even Margaret Rutherford, who has this one scene as the old lady who is gobsmacked with everything I say, you know, yeah, there's really not much to her. What flowers? Who's bringing me these flowers? Dear boy. Yeah, it's a, that's a very good impression of that, that scene. really good. Yeah. yeah. Well, hey. You know, I brought out some obscure ones, but did we really expect a Margaret Rutherford impression? <laughs> not, not, no, but no. I mean, I feel like that scene is also an example of how poorly paced this movie is because the joke there is that uh, people think that Sophia Loren is this woman who's this this old lady who's been confined to her cabin for the entire voyage. Another misdirect of like, hey, you are going to this room instead of this room. Right, right. And, and it's enough to just understand that. But then we have this five minute scene of multiple characters coming into that room and saying, oh, you've got flowers. Oh, wait, are those for her? You know, and like walking in and walking out. And it's just so belabored, like he doesn't trust the audience to get a joke. Right. Well, that's what I was saying in the idea of the silent physical comedy versus, you know, a gag like this where you don't need to hide it over the head so much. Right. No. And just again, the pacing, like, you know, silent movies are so short and he made so many short films. There's so many Chaplin movies that are 25 minutes long. And yet he has to make this movie 107 minutes or whatever. He couldn't, you know, kind of make it a bit livelier at least right well i mean you're not saying this should have been a short i mean no this, this should have been not made but <laughs> I, and i and i told you the reasons why i think you know you give it to him for getting it made and everything sure but sure. uh shorts you know that was all a lot of them were 1915 1920 right and right you know, shorts weren't really in vogue for uh, a man of uh, Chaplin stature at this point. No, no, but this movie could have been 85 minutes long. It could have yes. been 20 minutes shorter. Oh, I agree with that. I you know, that's that. that's what I mean. I just mean he's used to making these sort of livelier, shorter films, whether those are actual shorts or short features. Great and Dictators, two hours, two hours and four minutes. So I wonder if this is maybe in the talkies. We haven't, I haven't looked up the run. Yeah, well, I know one. Limelight and Monsieur Verdoux are also both over two hours. Yeah, so maybe that's part of yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, part of it, I think, is that he's, again, he's this titan of cinema at this point. If he wants to make a movie that long, then he can make a movie that long. Yeah. Um, wouldn't it be nice if some people today would only make movies at around the two hour mark? That's, I guess, my last point. I don't have anything else on this one. Yeah, that's fair. I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to come up with something that I... Liked, I did like, I, you know, I forgot to write down the actress's name, but uh, there's, there's a scene where uh, they all go up to a dance and Ogden is stuck dancing with this sort of society girl who just talks and talks and she's always like, daddy says this, and daddy says, and it's just, this, it's not even just like she has like sort of flighty society concerns about fashion. She's like, daddy says this about existential philosophy. Or, and it's just such a weird character. And then she comes back later, annoying uh, Sidney Chaplin's character. And that to me was like what I would have wanted of just like absurd comedy. And so I kind of like that character. Well, I got what I wanted, which was an impression from you. Thank so you. I'm yeah. That's a, nowhere near as good as your Margaret Rutherford impression. Well, I say thank you, dear boy. <laughs> All right. Well, we might as well just wrap this up then and give this a rating. Do we want to rate this out of five slamming doors? Sure. You know, I, I think you're going to give it lower. Like I said, it felt completely harmless and it's a technically proficient film. I give it two and a half. It's not the worst thing I've ever... I can't drop it to two because I didn't hate it as much as I've hated some movies. It's just there. 
Yeah, I'm I'm gonna give it two slamming doors out of five. I don't think I hated it, and and I think it's a fascinating thing to watch just in its as a study of Chaplin. But it's so tedious, and I did have to take like a break in the middle because I thought I don't think I can handle any more slamming doors for a All little right. bit. I'll give it two, also. I mean, you know, you know, I'm not trying to change your rating. I mean, I'll never recommend it, and I'm thinking about yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I would only recommend it if you are like a hardcore Chaplin fan yeah. and are really curious about what he did late in his career. Uh, Dave, you picked a nice one to skip. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, we've 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 covered worse movies. Yeah, definitely. That's why I'm saying two and a half. I thought. Yeah, fair. yeah. So uh, interesting footnote for Chaplin, I guess. That's it. Yeah. So we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of a Countess from Hong Kong. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1967, we've been talking about the flop of the year, Charlie Chaplin's A Countess from Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, sadly, this doesn't have a legacy for Chaplin, really, because this is the last film that he made. And, I mean, the legacy for him is him going out on this unfortunate note he lived another 10 years but never got another film project off the ground it's fine he's done so many you know it's like i was using that athlete comparison again right some athletes at the end of their career their body's breaking down and they don't have their best seasons most of them and then that's when they retire but you don't remember them for that you remember them for the greatness just like you know, we don't ever, when you hear Charlie Chaplin, do you think a Countess of Hong Kong or do you think modern times? Right. right of so. course. You think modern times, you think city lights or even the great Gold dictator. Rush, yeah. You know, so. Um, so do you have a favorite Chaplin? Um, I like city lights a lot. And I, I mean, I like modern times a lot. So yeah. You know. Yeah. Those are, those are great. Yeah. I, 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 Gold Rush too, I think. I mean, all of those silent features yeah. are just wonderful. I, I have a soft spot for the circus, which is kind of an underrated one, but I mean, all of them have great just hilarious set pieces in them. I was showing on the Criterion channel, they have a collection of not just the features, but the shorts. And I showed my daughter, there's one called The Champion from 1915. And it's like a precursor to the boxing, the, the iconic boxing scene in, uh, is it in City, City Lights, Lights yeah. I think. Yeah. And we watched it and it's, it's, you know, brilliant physical comedy, really just one long take little you know breaks here and there of the scene and uh, i asked my daughter who's seven what she thought of it and she said i'm bored but i like it and i thought that was a very <laughs> honest and fair assessment for a seven-year-old like i think she would watch more stuff yeah, like that but right. i don't think i could show her like a feature of it yet. right right well i mean i think one thing about that's the silent comedy is that it holds up in you know i could see it appealing to kids because it's on such a basic level of that slapstick stuff it still is amusing to watch yeah and, and also it's more appropriate to show someone uh who's seven than like what dave's parents did <laughs> which was showing him like caligula when he was seven <laughs> yeah dave your parents never showed you a like a chaplin movie or a buster keaton movie i'm sure they probably did honestly but uh yeah that i my brain is clouded by the other stuff <laughs> right that's that's what you know burned itself into your psyche oh, was yeah. uh the, the degeneracy yes <laughs> beautiful dave's walking around first grade asking his friends what their favorite scene from pink flamingos was <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah 
So, uh, I mean, as, as bad as Brando is in this movie, it certainly didn't tarnish his career. I mean, he was on a downslope here, right? The 50s and the 70s are Brando time, right? The yeah. 60s, maybe not as much. But yeah, he just, he murdered the 70s. So. Right. The Godfather and uh, Last Tango in Paris. Apocalypse. Yeah, Apocalypse Now. Yeah. I was trying to think, did Brando ever do more comedy? Yes, he did. And, yeah. And it was... Uh, and I think it was all right, if I'm not mistaken. I, have to, I haven't seen it in years, but he was in The Freshman with Matthew Broderick. Yeah. And I thought, and I remember liking that and thinking it was, uh, he, he went for it. It was fun. Yeah. And I, he was fun as that kind of spoof of the Godfather character. Right. I agree. I also have not seen that movie in a long time, but remember liking it and thinking it was funny. And I think why he's funny in that is because he's spoofing this well-known character and he's not as in Account is from Hong Kong trying to, sort of play straight comedy. He's able to just do what he's done before in a kind of over the top way. And it's funny because we're familiar with it. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, the stuff in the nineties where he's like Don Juan DeMarco. That was the other one I've never seen. Have you seen Don Juan? No, but I'm sure he could ham it up. And, you know, when we talked about him in, uh, in, uh, Dr. Moreau, like, you know, he's that's not meant to be funny. Right. (laughs) But he, but he doesn't seem to care. Right. Right. Well, yeah, no, Don Juan DeMarco. But I mean, yeah, the freshman was what came to mind. And Sophia Loren, the comedy grumpier old men. <laughs> yeah, man, really? You're really stumping for grumpier old men in this episode. I haven't. I did watch the original Grumpy Old Men uh-huh. not uh, last year, which is a lovely film. All right. And I haven't seen it. she comes in in the second one. And I remember this one big thing between the two grumpy old men where they want to take the property and one of them wants to turn it into a ristorante and the other one wants to turn it into a bait the shop and they argue restaurant bait shop but they say it like that a lot so i still remember that okay moving on is is sophia loren grumpy in that movie no she and Anne margaret are like the love interests who are like fellas don't be so grumpy (laughs) (laughs) there's so much to like out there yeah yeah i mean those were the only examples of brando comedy that i that i came up with morning from the 90s (laughs) yeah that's good that's good (laughs) Uh, I mean, the other thing about Brando is, I mean, we talked about Chaplin as sort of this like stuck in his ways curmudgeon making this movie. And I mean, Brando essentially became that person later in his career where he was difficult and yet everyone indulged him. Brando was like that probably throughout his entire career, right? So I think very few people got through to Brando though, the the way, I mean, Kazan maybe? Right. Oh, Coppola, way, way back going to on the waterfront. Yeah. Yeah. Coppola and Godfather, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Know, so. Well, I mean, I think early in his career, maybe he didn't have the leeway to be as difficult as he did when yeah. he got older in some of those movies in the 90s that he made. But look, look, we've now covered two Brando movies, neither one of his highlights, but we can't deny not just his brilliance on screen in those, but that he changed acting. Right. Like we're yeah. talking about the modernization of things in this year. He was the actor that all those guys, Pacino, De Niro, you know, Hoffman looked at as the guy who was modernizing the technique of acting. Right. And which is probably one of the reasons why he worked so poorly with Chaplin, because right. Chaplin wouldn't have thought of acting in that way. Yeah. Different, different strokes for different folks. Such a live and let live kind of <laughs> attitude you got there. Yeah, I'm a little laissez-faire about it. All right. So, yeah, I mean, like you, I haven't seen much that Sophia Loren has been in. Um, but she still works, is still still alive, and was just highly acclaimed last year in a movie called The Life Ahead, 
uh, that was a Netflix movie directed by her son, which I had been meaning to see, but I haven't seen. Did you watch that? No, I would. I would also be interested in watching. Yeah, it was. It was uh, touted for some awards. I think it got a nomination for a theme song. Was the best it did a Diane Warren song. Mm. But hopefully, the movie is better than a not Diane a Petula Warren song. Clark song. No, but. Not. Do you want to tell the story about how you met Diane Warren? <laughs> I don't know enough Diane Warren uh, songs to make that one work. Uh, were you uh, were you about to meet her and you thought I don't want to miss a thing? Oh, and she I- was. Uh, that was good. That's nice. That was good. Aerosmith. Yeah, there yeah. You go. So she wrote a lot of that crap. She wrote a lot of that crap. Did yeah. she write? She must have written Celine Dion. Oh, she's songs, written right? several yeah. Celine Dion songs. Yeah, yeah, she's known for all that. And so that's why I'm saying I'm sure that song in the Sophia Loren movie is yeah. along those lines. And hopefully the movie is. Look, better. we both are admitting it's a it's a real uh, spot. We have to you know go back in a lot of those Italian movies. We should watch her. And you know, yeah, I haven't seen any of those. The only, I was looking on Letterboxd, and the only one apparently I've seen is a movie from 1966 called Arabesque. With uh, Gregory Peck, I think, and I do not remember having seen that movie, but Letterboxd tells me I did. And uh, I mean, as a portrait of a movie star of physical beauty, she is like one of the most stunning, physical, most beautiful people you'll ever see. Yeah, I mean, and and that is a lot of her character in this movie is that she's just so striking that everyone will do things for her. And she pulls that off at least if nothing else. Yeah. So you mentioned Sidney Chaplin being good in this film and he did act steadily, but then retired in the seventies and uh, just uh, owned a restaurant in Palm Springs nice. for the later part of his life. It's good. Live on dad's, you know, money and your money and uh, just chill out, bro. Right. I mean, and I would imagine that even when he was successful, that his career would have always been in the shadow. How could, you, how could it not be? Right. But Geraldine Chaplin, who shows up, uh, was very young in this film and shows up in just this brief moment. She has a thriving career. She still works. She was just on The Crown recently, had a major part. So mm. of all the Chaplin children, she was the one. How who old went is on. she now, I wonder? I, I, she's, I mean, maybe in her 70s or 80s at this point, I think. But I um, mean, still works steadily. Um, played Wallace Simpson, I think, on the most recent season of The Crown. And this is uh, Tibby Hedred's first movie away from Hitchcock since The Birds. I think so. I yeah, think it's The Birds. Yeah, yeah. and Tibby Hedren still around, but doesn't really uh, does. It, she also kind of retired from acting. Yeah, she told this story about how you know because uh, Hitchcock was very possessive of his actors, another old school mentality. And you know, while he, they were filming this. She had like tea with Hitchcock and uh, she said, you should, you should meet Chaplin. Why would I ever want to do that? Right. <laughs> and uh, that was the last time they ever spoke. And whatnot. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to imagine a meeting between Hitchcock and Chaplin. I mean, they must've come across each other. They, I mean, Hitchcock think, started right? in the silent yeah, era too. So. Yeah. And just uh, on the Chaplin family, I wanted to also mention Geraldine's daughter, Una Chaplin, also a working actor who's younger in her thirties or forties. And, uh, works steadily. She was on Game of Thrones and uh, has Who done a lot play? of stuff. Uh, I don't know. I didn't. No. I. But um, you know, some somebody beheaded somebody maybe or got cool. beheaded. Seems yeah. likely. Um, but you know, they they they've managed, especially Geraldine. They've managed to to kind of carve their own careers in a way that Sydney maybe didn't. Yeah. Well, Chaplin. I just want to say, tra- Chaplin. Like as I mentioned, like he'll never get his due justice as. Um, an all around genius because he's such a genius on screen, but like as a director and the, the fact that he does the music too, like he's great at that. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, uh, you know, no harm, no foul here, Charlie. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I agree. I think people, if they know him and especially his sort of pop culture image is him on screen and people might not even realize that he's the, 
director of the vast majority of those and the writer of the music. And when I've gone to those Henderson Symphony performances, they'll, you know, make a note that this is the score that Chaplin wrote that they're performing. You know, you can perform anything. Uh, and oftentimes when you see silent movies with live accompaniment, it's a new score that's been written recently, but they'll use that Chaplin music because it's still great. Yeah, don't put in the new music. Put in the and old music. Sometimes the new music is right. Sometimes they don't have the old music. It's been lost. Right. So um, I have Diane Warren, right? Yeah. Sad, a Diane know. Warren accompaniment to a silent film. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that is a Countess from Hong Kong. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media. Check us out on social media. Jason Harris Comedy is my name on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. That's my handle, I should say, on the social. Go for Jason.com. Throw that one off of the ship. Uh, awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. Uh, AwesomeMovieYear.com. How do you like that website, Dave? It's got an about section. All right. Yeah, it does the job. It it gets it done. We got our episodes there if you want to listen to them. Straight up. It's better than my website, joshbellhateseverything.com. It's got some stuff on it. Uh, Also, Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. What do we have in our next episode, Jason? Josh, we're going back to France. Oui, oui, that's not how people in France talk. The <laughs> Palme d'Or winner from the Cannes Film Festival, uh, Michelangelo Antonioni, another major figure we have yet to discuss on the podcast, his uh, revered film, Blow Up. So tune in next time for Blow Up, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.